0: Investors Chronicle.
1: Welcome to the IC Interviews. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me is Nick Train, manager of funds including Finsbury Growth and Income Trusts and Elif Linsall Train UK Equity. Over the 30 years that Nick has worked in investment management, he has delivered outstanding returns of the funds he runs, including those managed by the investment firm he co-founded in 2000, Linsell Train Limited. Nick has achieved this in part by taking an investment approach likened to that of another highly successful investor, Warren Buffett. This involves investing in financially strong, large global companies and rarely trading them. However, over the past year, Linsel Train's funds have underperformed their peer group averages and benchmarks, which for UK funds is the FTSE All Share Index. Nick, what are the main reasons for this?
0: Stock-specific reasons, which I expect are the most are the most important factors. Um, and let, let's talk about those. Um, I think I think it's fair to say that um, because because of our style, um, the, the 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 strategy was quite defensive. I hate that terminology, but I'm going to use it because it's the terminology everybody understands. We were quite defensive during 2020, during the the worst of that COVID panic and meltdown in markets. Um, And I, I, I guess that is not, it didn't completely surprise me that given that we'd held up, reasonably well during 2020 that we might have lagged in 2021 i I, you know i just think at a at a very strategic level that's maybe worth noting um but 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 even if i do acknowledge that to to me yeah to, to to me 2021 was was marked by yeah some disappointing share price returns from businesses that, you know, we've got big holdings in, in most cases that we've been invested in for a long, long time, you know, and pretty much in all cases that have done really, really well over uh, many years, but for whatever reason, didn't do so well in 2021. Um of which, you know, as as I know you, you've noted, because I've commented on it as well, of, of of which the most notable, the biggest detractor was was London Stock Exchange, um, where, you know, we went into last year with the LSE, pretty much the biggest holding in the portfolio, getting on for ten percent of the portfolio. LSE hit an all time high in February of uh, 2021. Um, but then, you know, for a variety of reasons, which we can discuss if you're interested, proceeded to spend much of the rest of 2021 going down. That I think was, well, it was certainly the biggest detractor and maybe a disappointment as well. I, maybe a disappointment. I, I, I Yeah, I don't, I don't know quite how I would characterize it. But anyway, but, you know, we... we um, you know, we've also got a long standing holding in Unilever. Obviously that's a topical investment currently. Again, we've held that just like the LSE actually. I mean we've held both of those for at least well, at least fifteen years, probably getting closer to twenty years for for both of those. And actually they've both been very satisfactory investments over that longer time horizon. But again, Unilever had a difficult year last year as a share price. Uh, not catastrophic, actually, but, but anyway, it, it, it meaningfully underperformed the, the market. And I guess some of the furore in January of, of 2022 surrounding Unilever is other investors expressing their frustration with uh, with the recent share price performance of that company.
1: What are the main reasons for London Stock Exchange and Unilever underperforming and what do you intend to do about them?
0: Using uh, a a simplistic cliche, (laughs) that's my speciality, simplistic cliches. Um, I mean, I think the issue for the LSE was an understandable concern that the company has bitten off more than it can chew. Um, you of course know, and I, I, I expect most of your readers will know that uh, the LSE did eventually close the acquisition of Refinitiv um, early last year, which is by a very, very considerable margin the biggest transaction that the LSE has ever done. Um, you know, in its twenty odd year history as a as a quoted company, um, and Refinitive is a, an asset that, you know, in and of itself, arguably had something to prove. Um, so, so the combine the combination, uh, I, I, I think, left investors saying, "Well, you know, that's a brave, um, transformational acquisition, and perhaps it might make sense or be prudent to." Sit back for a bit and wait and see what kind of fist the LSE actually makes of that of that acquisition, rather than just assuming that everything's going to be everything's going to work out fine. I mean, the direct answer to your question: what what we did pretty much throughout 2021, and, and actually, indeed, so far in January of this year, is we we persistently. Been adding to our holding in the London Stock Exchange, you know, as and as and when we can. Um, uh, 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 So deduce from that that we are working on the assumption that this transaction is going to turn out to be a considerable success, and that the fall in the LSE share price last year therefore represents a. You know, a fantastic opportunity for investors to access what is a very rare type of UK company. Um, You you know, famously, the UK is short of globally significant data and analytics businesses, or or let's say, tech businesses, Um, and. While I'm not saying that the London Stock Exchange is Alphabet or Facebook. Um, nonetheless, it is—you know—it's a technology-driven platform business with a major, major. Um, well, now the majority of the company actually is is, is data analytics, um, and as such, that's thematically the right industry to be invested in, and the LSE looks notably undervalued in comparison to its global peers that are operating in in similar areas. Do, do we know absolutely for sure that the refinitive deal is, is going to be a winner? Um, no, we don't. Um I might even suggest that a year into the acquisition, maybe even David Schwimmer, you know, the CEO of the LSE, doesn't yet finally know whether the deal is going to, to succeed. But, you know, it's an unfortunate truth in probably all aspects of life, actually, but certainly in investment, that if you wait for something to be... Fully confirmed, then you're going to be too late. Do you know what I mean? You, you, you've got to take a view. If 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 investors wait until there's positive proof that the refinative deal has worked, that's going to be too late because by that time the shares will be up twenty percent and and uh, no one will want to sell. <laughs> I think Unilever is a Unilever is a is a well, it, 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 it's a different situation in that um, <laughs> Unilever hasn't done a transformational acquisition um, like the LSE did last year. Of course, ironically, you know the, the current furor is as a result of Unilever attempting to do a, a, a transformational acquisition. The short, the, the best way to understand the. The disappointment surrounding Unilever, whether it's warranted or not, I'm I'm not so sure. I I don't think there's anything hugely surprising about Unilever's business performance uh, or, or share price performance, frankly, for historic reasons. And historically, this has been an enormous strength for the company. For historic reasons, Unilever has a higher exposure to emerging markets. Than pretty much any of its global peers. As I say, on a on a twenty year view, the fact that Unilever overweights to emerging markets that's been a fantastic source of growth and strength for the company. For all of those, you know, long standing stories or, or arguments we know about as the world gradually gets wealthier, as emerging markets have more middle class populace, then. The sort of products and market positions that Unilever has in those geographies do very, very well. But there's no question, over the last five years, and arguably even since the, the, the 2009 financial crisis, emerging markets have had a more difficult time as economies, their currencies have been weak that's made it more of a challenge for Unilever to match the sort of growth rate that it delivered in the first 15 years of the of the 21st century, say.
1: Are you doing anything in particular to improve the fund's performance? And when do you expect this to improve?
0: Oh, are you going to allow me to say, you tell me? <laughs> um, listen, I, 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 and... You shouldn't ask fund managers that, um, because it, it, it implies that any fund manager has got the faintest idea. Um, you, you're, you, you're endowing us with fundamentally too much, too, too much foresight and judgment. N- nobody, nobody can truly have any idea, um, what the answer is to that question, um, I, it, it bothers me a bit that, you know, financial market experts, you know, are held up as people who truly can predict what's going to happen and what's going to happen to performance or economies or stock markets. I mean, none of us really have the faintest idea. Um, so, so sorry, that's my little hom- homily. Um, and I'm sure, Leonora, that you are deeply sceptical. Whenever anybody in this industry makes a prediction about the future, particularly the short to medium term future, um, however, um, what are we doing to uh, improve performance? I think uh, if I could say that the, the first, the first thing and the most important thing is to stick to the principles uh, and investment approach that. We articulated when we set up Luton Train Limited 21 years ago, and we've stuck to throughout the two decades. And you know, we propose to continue sticking to those principles. It, 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 I mean, that that that's the only way, really, that I can conceive that. Let me put it this way: that we can we can be of value to our investors and and to clients. You know, to, to offer a you know what I hope is a coherent and clearly articulated approach, and stick to it, um, because at least that offers investors the opportunity to make their own judgment about whether or not what we do might work or is valid for their objectives. So I think that consistency that consistency is important um, and we place a high priority on the consistency of what we do. Um, I would, I will say, though, that at the margin, and I think this is true for, yeah, it's true for what I've been doing for the last three years, four years, uh, it, it, it is I've been interested to, at the margin in our portfolios increase our exposure to companies um doing value creating things with digital technology finding digital winners within the context of the UK stock market uh which you know isn't necessarily so easy but but that, that's that's been a real focus uh, and we can talk about some of the some of the actions there to to pursue that. The the other thing I've been very, very keen to do is to build the exposure in the portfolio to companies offering luxury, uh, super premium and premium products, brands and, and services as well. Working on the assumption that what is most likely... To give us the best chance of meeting our investors' you know reasonable expectations for, for returns, what gives us the best chance of doing that is finding, as I say, either digital winners or companies with truly exceptional luxury and premium brands. Tabling a couple of examples of relatively new holdings in Finsbury, although these are both uh, at least, well, yeah, at least two two years um, that we've been building these positions. We've built a holding in Experian, that, like the London Stock Exchange, I would argue, is one of only a handful of really substantive, globally competitive data and analytics companies. That happen to be listed on the London stock market rather than on NASDAQ. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Experian, you know, it's a £27 billion company that is at least as good, if not from some measures, better than comparable US credit and um, data companies. So, you know, we're lucky, I think, that Experian it is a is is a UK listed business. So from yeah, you know that that's turned into a five percent holding in Sainsbury over the last couple of years. Uh, and and sorry, the 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 other stock uh, is Fever Tree, where uh, we were able to take advantage. I hope anyway, take advantage of some of the weakness associated. With that share price, that was a company, of course, that's been hit by COVID. Of course, Fever Tree is offering a, a premium product. And in fact, you could argue that Fever Tree has created an entirely new premium category within mixers that didn't exist um, before that business was established. And um, yeah, I, I, again, I think that's. A, I mean, that's been a wonderful achievement what Fever Tree has turned into over the last ten years, um, and yeah, it's only just starting really.
1: You recently commented that there are many opportunities, especially in the UK market, where there are compelling growth stories. On much lower valuations in global peers, what are other examples of these, and why do they have the potential to grow? Um, and what global trends uh, do they offer exposure to?
0: Okay, well, I, 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 let me let me put some names out there um, of of companies that we're invested, which are in their own ways as good as, if not superior in some cases to global peers, but are often meaningfully undervalued in comparison to to global peers. Um, I would say Relex. I think Relex is arguably the best technology stroke data company quoted on the London stock market with a a collection of assets that, when you compare them to to glo, to to similar global businesses, I think Relx's franchises are at least as good, if not superior, um, to 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 global comparisons, and yet Relex is notably less highly valued. I think that Burberry, um, while Burberry Okay, Burberry isn't Gucci, and it isn't Hermes, yet it definitely is a resonant global luxury franchise, uh, with in particular a, a um, a wonderful presence in Asia, and particularly in China. And yet, the valuation of Burberry, I mean, it's, it's radically lower than, than say, a Gucci or an Hermes. Uh, again, I'm not saying that it should be valued as highly as them, but my God, the valuation gap is, is enormous.
1: In view of the good opportunities you cite, um, in particular in the UK market, do you expect to buy more new holdings than usual this year? Uh, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm wriggling here. I'm wriggling. Um I I I have always been a great proponent of the the Warren Buffett proposition that if you own good stuff and if you think that what you own is undervalued then almost always it makes more sense to buy more of what you already own rather than initiate new holdings particularly if your level of confidence isn't as high right now i have to say i think that that our existing portfolio captures many of the themes and undervaluations that you know i've been talking about and at the moment i'm just as happy adding to existing positions as initiating new ones if you will allow me though uh, I, I don't know if this sounds contradictory uh, uh, and perhaps it's not of enormous interest to anybody but me I do feel currently that the the the, the substitute bench again to use the cliche fund manager cliche there are more possible new holdings than I can remember for some time and I I think that that to me anyway that reflects the lamentable period of poor performance by the UK stock market. I mean, there's no question that global asset allocators have been pessimistic about the UK for many years. And we see, and anecdotally, it's clear as well that even domestic UK institutions have been selling out of um, UK, UK the UK market. And I, I do think that that has opportunities
1: would you be able to give any uh, examples of these potential substitutes
0: <laughs> um, well I suppose only only ones that we're unlikely to be doing anything in the short term um, Smith and nephew is a, is a wonderful business and it's that's been a company that we've watched for a long 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 time. And the shares have derated a lot in the last few years, and that is that is very interesting. There's a cohort of newer listed UK companies, often in in digital, doing interesting things. you know, a right move, um, an auto trader, maybe. We've actually inherited. Um, a holding in Kazoo at the back end of last year um, came out of, of Daily Mail. Um, that is a fascinating British company doing something disruptive and potentially very value-creating in the, 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 the used car market in the UK. So, yeah, um, I find that there are more things to be interested in currently than certainly there were pre-COVID.
1: Now, you don't buy and sell a lot, but recently you've substantially reduced your fund's holdings in Pearson. Um, why did you do this? And do you expect to reduce that holding a lot further?
0: I, I think a lot of UK funds have had have had outflows over the last couple of years, you know, partly just relating to, that, to what I've said, that, that clearly some institutions, asset allocators are just throwing in the towel on the UK. Um, When we've had redemptions or cash outflows from our strategies, you're forced to make a decision about what you're going to sell in order to raise the cash. And our view, our approach to that challenge is to say, okay, we will... We will sell down or reduce the holdings where we have the lowest relative conviction. And rightly or wrongly, time will tell, Pe- Pearson was the holding where we felt that we had the lowest conviction across the portfolio. So that was that we disproportionately sold down there.
1: Um, you've obviously had outflows from the open-ended fund. Um, but Finsbury Gro- Growth and Income is a closed-ended fund, um, which obviously wouldn't have outflows. So did you also sell Pearson out of Finsbury Growth and Income?
0: I mean, just, just as, a, as a point of detail, I mean, actually, Finsbury has an active share buyback policy um, uh, and did, in fact, buy back some shares last year and of course when you buy back shares that's essentially the same as an outflow so so there were some outflows from finsbury last year but you're you're right um it is a closed end fund and it, it and also the quant the quantum was greater for the open-ended the open-ended strategies as um, as as um, you might expect but 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 Yes, it's important. It's important for us, and I, we think it's important for our clients that there's a consistency across across the portfolios. So that that's why that's Finsbury participated as well um, in the eventual exit of that stake.
1: You said in Finsbury Growth and Income Trust's last annual report, that "Your holding in Sage has tested your patients more than most companies." What are your reasons for continuing to hold it? And when do you think its performance will improve?
0: The stock was up 50% last year. Does, does that count as an improvement? <laughs> um, th- this, is a, this is a prodigiously um, cash generative business um, that has been looking to find ways to deploy its cash to accelerate growth. Um and yeah, you know, there have been some false starts, but i I think credit is due to the the current management team the, the uh, they've they've made some smart acquisitions, particularly in the United States, that have now accelerated the growth rate of the company, and they've also innovated and created new products and services. Particularly, perhaps in the UK, that look as though that they are uh, attracting growing numbers of new customers, and that's great. And you know, I very much hope that 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 Sage has another successful year of, of the share price as it did last year.
1: Now, in terms of exits, another exit was Daily Mail and General Trust following a takeover. Presumably, that's given you some cash to spend. So, how are you deploying the proceeds?
0: Well, uh, re- really, just reverting, Leonora, to what I said earlier, that at the margin, I want the portfolio to have more exposure to luxury and premium, and I want it to have more exposure to truly substantive, globally oriented digital winners. Um, and. I mentioned Experian and I mentioned Fever Tree. Both of those have had really quite weak share prices so far in 2022. Um, you know, they've, they've been caught up in the, the sell-off in, in Nasdaq, and yeah, we've, we've, we've directed quite a lot of the, the Daily Mail cash in those directions, in, in those two's direction.
1: And have there been any other significant uh, sales or purchases recently that you'd like to highlight?
0: Not that I, not that I haven't mentioned. I mean, I, 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 I do. I have to say, I mean, just going back to right the way where we were at the start of this conversation with the London Stock Exchange. You know that is that is an investment that, for good or for ill, I think is likely to have a big impact on. The absolute and relative performance of this strategy over the next couple of years. Um, obviously, I sincerely hope it's going to be a positive impact. Um, but, but just, just to reiterate, a lot of marginal capital, particularly in 2021, went into the LSE as that share price was falling. Um, so, in a sense, you know, we've really reinvested in 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 LSE. Um, during the second half of last year. So, yes, let's hope that pays off.
1: Things didn't work out as envisaged with Pearson. Um, are there any other examples of when that's happened with a, a company you hold?
0: Uh, th- I mean, this is ancient ancient history, but uh, in, in a way it's interesting. Uh, to me it's interesting. I don't know whether it's to you or your readers, but the, 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 the company that previously tested my patients. And it's a company that was trying to do the same sort of thing as Pearson, which was to take an analogue set of assets and turn it to digital with EMI. I mean, that 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 was a disappointing, longstanding investment. Now, I, I'm talking about the first decade of you know, you know with uh, the, you know EMI's not even been a quoted company for probably 12 years but that that's the one when you ask for an example of other things that didn't work that sticks in my mind
1: and have you particularly learned anything from that or has it brought anything new to how you invest or what you do
0: the the big learning lesson um and the most relevant learning lesson is what really kills you um is is, is businesses where uh, debt is high cash flow is poor and debt carries on rising that those are the circumstances where equity value gets crushed uh, now that's that's actually not the case for pearson but uh, when you say what What have I learned? I I don't know exactly what I've learned out from 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 Pearson and EMI. I think, actually, frankly, I would make, I would attempt to make the same investment again, um, because I think that, that the underlying idea of identifying businesses that that can add value for consumers or individuals. By doing clever things with digital technology, I, I, I'm just so sure that that is the crucial um, investment idea of you know the next 25 years. Uh, you know, we're constantly looking for ideas, and probably will I'll make more mistakes. But so just taking a step back from Pearson or even EMI, the central lesson is 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 being fussed about debt.
1: You stick to your investment approach um, as you frequently say, um, but the pandemics changed a lot of things. so when you're evaluating new investments or, or existing ones, are there any new factors or considerations that you have to take into account? I think
0: and, and I, I'd acknowledge that you know this is harder for me. Uh, perhaps than some of my younger colleagues, and you know, I, I I'm learning from my my younger colleagues. I think that that successful digital businesses have structurally higher returns on capital than 20th century analog businesses that buy and sell real physical things. Does that make sense? That that justifies fundamentally higher valuations for for successful digital businesses and yeah that i i think if there is a change it's it's recognising that you know i started in the very early 1980s it, it, what might have appeared outrageously overvalued from the perspective of a company in 1987 is not necessarily outrageously overvalued, and indeed could still be meaningfully undervalued in the context of, you know, what, you know, the internet. Let's just be simplistic. What the internet has done to industry over the last uh, over the last quarter of a century.
1: You 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 don't change your investment approach. But are there any other broader changes that you anticipate making to any of the funds you've run?
0: If you look back at a, a Lintel train portfolio back in 2002, um, and you look at a Lintel train portfolio today, you you'll see that the portfolios twenty years ago were built around three or four conceptual ideas and Those conceptual ideas seem to us to be as relevant and potentially value creating today as they were 20 years ago, and I, you know, I think in particular that being invested in companies that own data or entertainment assets or information assets that are unavailable elsewhere, I, I, I think that's that's owning companies that have products or, or, or brands that consumers enjoy or absolutely feel that they must have use. And I also think um, having exposure to companies that do well when stock markets go up, like stock markets themselves or asset management companies, th- those have always been the the central ideas driving our portfolios, um, you were kind enough to say that our longer term returns remain competitive. I hope they continue to be competitive if they if, what created those longer term track records was structuring portfolios around those ideas and yeah, I think that they are they are as relevant as ever.
1: You aim to invest in quality companies, but could any of Finsbury Growth and Income Trusts and Ella Flint's trained UK equities holdings participate in a market upswing for more value-orientated stocks?
0: That's well, a fascinating question. Um, I mean, I, 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 I believe that a number of our quality investments have, for a variety of reasons, become so undervalued that they are (laughs) undervalued quality stocks and could do extraordinarily well. Um, But I'll I'll mention some names, but but what I don't want to do is give the impression, particularly for clients who want to try and invest in a fund that's really going to offer a big upswing in, I don't know, commodity companies or, or manufacturing companies or Oil companies. I mean, we're, we're not exposed to those sorts of more overtly cyclical businesses. And if that's the effect that a, an investor wants to capture, then they they won't be able to find that in in what we do. But you know, I'd I'd say I'd say that um, I'd say that Schroders, for instance, that that at at the current price, Schroeder's looks like a classic value stock. Which, I don't know, I, 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 we, I would still absolutely see Schroeder's as a very high-quality company with significant secular growth potential. But you, you're definitely not paying for that secular growth potential currently. I think the same is probably true of, of Hargreaves Lansdowne. That has derated enormously as a business over the last couple of years, despite very, very strong business growth. And I, you know I think that's a, that's, a, that's a fascinating situation. I've mentioned Burberry. I know anecdotally that a number of UK value strategies, overtly value strategies have been investing in Burberry recently because the valuation is so low and so low in particular compared to its peers. So, yes, I mean, <laughs> I would prefer that all of the ones I've mentioned had much higher share prices and were valued more highly, but they're not. But, uh, it, 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 so, I think that that does present some latent value, or I sincerely hope it does, you know, for, for our shareholders.
1: Thank you, Nick. A really helpful update on your funds and insight into the state of a UK equity market.